Thank you, men, for a great offering. Lifts our hearts and causes us to focus on who the Lord is. And yeah, that's what it's all about living for the Lord, living out our freedoms in Christ appropriately so that others might come to know and hear Christ as well. So as we celebrate this Independence Day, celebrate the ultimate independence that we have that we'll celebrate for eternity independence of sin, independence of Satan, living under a really good king that will serve forever and ever in the new heavens and in the new earth. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Thank you for being with us. It's good that you're using technology in a good way to be in fellowship with us as we are here. We've just celebrated the Lord's table. Now we have an opportunity to hear from the buffet of the Lord as it's presented in his word. I pray that you'll have your Bible's open to Matthew 15, wherever you might be scattered hither and yon as we gather around the throne of grace this morning. It was naturalist Henry David Thoreau who said that most men live lives of quiet desperation. And in his own attempt to avoid that kind of existence, he lived alone for two years, two years in the woods of rural Massachusetts. And in 1854, he published a book and summarized his experiences this way. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could learn what it had to teach, and so not when I came to die discovered that I had not really lived. I did not wish to live what was not life, for living is so dear. Any eye that we may cast upon the culture in any situation in almost every place will find that many are indeed living lives of quiet desperation. For many, it results in forms of self-harm, various forms of addiction, violence against themselves or against others. But people also live in desperation when they see things spiral out of control in the lives of those they love. And it was in such a situation that another famous expression Desperate measures, or desperate times call for desperate measures, which was first uttered by Hippocrates, the ancient Greek doctor oh so long ago, who said that when there are extreme diseases, they demand extreme treatments. And I think both of those sayings set us up for what we're seeing this morning in the Word of God. It's a good way to prepare us as we continue in our study, the Gospel according to Matthew. For this morning, we meet a desperate woman who seeks help for the healing of her daughter. And she hears about the arrival of Jesus into her area and she drops everything that she is doing and pursues Jesus in the hope that maybe she will find something for her daughter. And the fact that she is from the dreaded Canaanites adds color and interest to the story as we look at it this morning. For we've just found in recent passages that Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees and the scribes about the nature of purity of defilement, of where true worship originates, of what is clean and unclean. And now we find Jesus encountering someone who would be seen as exhibit A of what is ceremonially pure or not. And so with all of that as our introduction, I invite you to stand in honor of God and His Holy Word as we read the passage we will consider this morning, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. And the living and holy Word of God Says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. 
but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Let us receive it from God the Holy Spirit as a gift for our instruction and edification. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, in our passage this morning, you will teach us about a woman who was desperate to find our Lord Jesus. And we know, Father, that that is our ultimate need, that we would also find Jesus and receive from him all that he has promised to us, but find in him the only source of ultimate satisfaction. So would you be our teacher this morning as we go through these words together? Would you be our teacher and our guide? Would you instruct us and lead us? And would the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be lifted high in our midst as we commit ourselves to you now? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus, the text begins, goes away from there and withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon. He had a lengthy ministry in Galilee. We've taken several chapters to get to this point of how he is now leaving Galilee and going to spend some time in some Gentile areas. It's another one of the strategic withdrawals that Jesus makes in his ministry. He's just had a time of intense interaction with the religious leaders who have come from Jerusalem to test him. He's finding that opposition to his ministry is growing and shows no sign of relenting, and so he's just going to move on to another area. And as he does, he's going to have an opportunity to demonstrate and to put into practice what he has just been interacting with the Pharisees and the scribes about, who has a clean heart and who does not, what is the nature of pure worship and what is not. And he finds a woman and whom he can show that it really is what is in the heart that comes out on the mouth of a person. He's already warned us about that, that what appears on our lips is what has already been percolating in our heart. And so after discussing what is clean and what is unclean and what is the nature of true worship, here we have a woman, an unlikely hero, as it were, who gives us a model of what faith in Christ can look like. As Jesus will move into Gentile territories, if nothing else, for a short period of time, he shows that the gospel is for all people, that salvation is available to all who come and believe in Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 15, we're going to have a little bit of a change from what we've seen in previous chapters because now Jesus is among Gentiles. He's going to show ministries of compassion and perform miracles to show that the gospel indeed does go out to all types of people from all types of backgrounds. And so as you're following along in your sermon outline or on our, our church app, we come to our first major point, which is pleading requests. Pleading requests. And I'm going to read that first verse a couple of times because we're, we're trying to set the table, the, the background and situation of what is happening. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. 
These two cities were famous cities that were north and northwest of the territory of Galilee along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In the past, they were part of the Phoenician territory, but today we know them as the modern cities of Tyre and Sidon in the modern country of Lebanon. Tyre was a little further north on the sea, as we've said, and Sidon was found another 25 miles further north. So when it says that Jesus went into the district of Tyre and Sidon, he went into the area that would have been governed by these two cities, but would have had to travel some distance. And these two cities were ancient Canaanite cities with a long history of rebellion against the God of Israel and his people. In fact, they had been subject to several of God's judgments. And if you want to just write in your notes, there's some famous prophecies in Ezekiel 26 and 28 that we won't look at this morning. But they talk about how God had promised punishment against Tyre and Sidon. And these punishments were accomplished down to the last detail in the invasions of Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great. When God speaks, he brings forth and accomplishes his word. But for our purposes this morning, it is enough to know that Tyre and Sidon were long-standing enemies of Israel. And yet, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, as he has been in this time of opposition, it's time to get away. And so, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Matthew does not tell us why he left, but Mark does. And in the beauty that is God's Word in this collection of books, of 66 books that, that form a library, the library of God, we depend upon the different books to add color and detail to help mold the picture and the story together. So in Mark chapter 7, recounting the same story that we see here, it says that Jesus went away to Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. I think that detail from Mark helps us to understand a little better the story as it is unfolding. This was a time of respite from the growing crowds and opposition. And so as he is withdrawing, hoping to have a time of quiet teaching and fellowship with the disciples, behold, a Canaanite woman came out. And I'm going to move through this sentence piece by piece, so there's not going to be a complete phrase there at the beginning. And behold, a Canaanite woman came out. Now, as soon as the original listeners to Matthew's gospel would hear this word, Canaanite woman, the tone and the tenor of the story would change. Because the Canaanites, they're an old race. They date back to around 3000 B.C., they were a, an educated people. They were, they were an advanced people. One of the, if not the oldest alphabets that has been found in the world was, was established by the Canaanites. So what was the problem that this woman was a Canaanite? Well, if we take a little further step back in the history of Israel, God has sent them into exile. They've spent 400 plus years in the land of Egypt. He leads them out of Egypt. He leads them through the wilderness. He leads them into the promised land, and he says, wipe out the Canaanites. And as we see this story in Judges and, and other books, Joshua, they didn't do it. They didn't wipe out all the Canaanites. These Canaanites who were pagan worshipers, they had many other gods and goddesses. They were idolaters. They were practitioners of the, the worst of the worst of the worst of sexual sins. They were an abomination to the Lord. And in order to protect his people and the holiness of the land, God said, get rid of them so that you are not contaminated by the sin. 
that they are committing, but they failed to send them away. They failed to wipe them out. And the Canaanites were a persistent thorn in the side of Israel for centuries. So it's bad enough, as it were, that a Canaanite comes to Jesus, but now we see that it is a Canaanite woman, and this would add to the drama because Canaanites and Israelites already didn't really want to have a lot of interaction. And in that day, it was not seen as appropriate for a woman to be engaged in public discourse with a man. And here we have a Canaanite woman and a Jewish man engaging in this conversation, this spectacle. So this will be a test case, as it were, of what does a true worshiper of Jesus look like? What does it mean to be worshiping him from a pure heart? And so as it's time to get away, behold, this woman comes, and she is a desperate mother. She is a desperate mother. The text goes on and says, And behold, a Canaanite woman came out and was crying, Have mercy on me. This desperate mother has heard about Jesus and somehow has heard that he has come to her district. And so she comes to him, and we've already said this would have been unusual to do publicly. And we're not told why she was crying. But a better translation may help because a better translation would say she was shouting out loud, which is really what the word means. And since it was in the imperfect tense, it was something that was ongoing. She's coming and she's crying out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. She makes no claim as if she had a right to anything from the Lord. She's just crying out for mercy, which by the very nature of mercy is not something we can ever demand. Mercy can only be requested. It's the nature of mercy and grace to give to the undeserving. And she, keep, she comes crying out. She's crying out to Jesus. She's crying out to the apostles. And, and apparently, without any effect. So we see a contrast here, do we not? We've just seen this confrontation between these religious leaders that have come from Jerusalem and they're confronting Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes, and now we compare that, those who are self-proclaimed clean, contrast that with the attitude of this woman, a, an unclean woman, and we see that the Pharisees were angry with Jesus, but this woman comes and pleads with them. The Pharisees take offense at Jesus, but this Canaanite woman comes and uses respectful and reverential terms. We see that the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees is revealed to be unclean because they've not yet turned to the Lord and entered the kingdom of heaven. While it appears that this woman is displaying a clean heart more as we move through the story. And what she says is revealing, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now it's interesting that the word Lord can be used just in respectful terms as people interact with, the, with each other. Old English, yes, my Lord. It can be used in that sort of title. It seems to carry more weight than that here. We'll see that as the story unfolds. But what I really want to key in is on the term son of David. This is a messianic title. It was used eight times in the gospel according to Matthew. How did this Canaanite woman know about the titles of the Messiah, the Messiah that was thought to be of the Jews? Well, she must have heard something about the words and the actions and, and the miracles that Jesus was performing in the region of Galilee. So she has some knowledge of what is happening, some Jew understanding of the Jewish expectations of the titles and the powers of the Messiah. But she seems to indicate a greater knowledge than just a passing knowledge here. 
Now, the term son of David itself is important, and it's important in Matthew, and we see it right at the beginning in presenting who this Jesus is, that he is the son of David, the promised Messiah. You see, there were famous prophecies. We read many of them in our Christmas season concerning David and his son, who would be a Messiah, a mighty warrior, a ruler over Israel. Familiar passages that we read during the Advent season. And with her greeting, then, it seems that this woman has a little more knowledge than just a passing intellectual knowledge of names that she has heard. And I think as we move on, we'll, make, we'll see that, in fact, this is a woman of faith, a woman who believes. And if, in fact, that's the case, what a contrast, again, between the arrogant leaders of the religious elite who claimed to be clean but were defiled in heart and this Canaanite woman who would have been declared to be dirty but who seems to have a heart that has been cleansed by faith. Well, whatever we discover as we move forward with this woman and this interaction with Jesus, the titles that she uses for Jesus were not used by many in Israel at the time. And so is there a, a test where Matthew is revealing to his initial Jewish listeners that Jesus has come to be the Savior of all who would believe even beyond the borders of Israel. But she brings a request that is serious. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by your demons. It's hard for us to know exactly what this looked like, but demonic activity does show up in the life of Jesus, often in Gentile lands. But somehow she is severely oppressed by a demon. Perhaps something has happened to her or something has happened to someone in her family where they have opened themselves up to the power of evil and now this girl is facing the effects of, of, de of demonic and evil control in her lives and her mother is desperate, desperate to do something about it. So after we have these pleading requests, we get to our second major point, which is puzzling replies. Puzzling replies. Here we have a mother who's worried, certainly frantic, who has come to Jesus. Her daughter is in serious spiritual and physical danger, and she's desperate to see her taken care of. Our hearts certainly can go out to this woman who would desire to see her daughter made whole again. And so she keeps on shouting out to Jesus and shouting out to the apostles for them to do something, and they're responding, or they're, I should say they're not responding, certainly not in a positive way, and not yet. Because she comes and she's crying out and we see this first response, which is one of silence and persistence. Silence on the part of Jesus, persistence on the part of this woman. She comes and she asks for help, but Jesus did not answer her a word. Jesus' first response is to not give her an answer at all. It makes us a little uncomfortable. This response seems odd. It even seems a little rude. Why is Jesus acting this way? Well, I think the detail that we read, which is why we did at the beginning in Mark 7, gives part of the answer. That Jesus desired some time away, both for him and his disciples, and yet here comes this desperate Canaanite woman who is shouting out loud to them again and again, requesting mercy. And she's not only badgering Jesus, she's badgering the apostles. So they come to Jesus and say, give her an answer. And our text goes on and says, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, 
send her away, for she's crying out after us. The intensity of her pleas continue, and they increase to the point where the disciples are overwhelmed. This desperate mother is serious about getting help for her daughter. She's not worried about following the social conventions of the day about what is and what isn't appropriate in public discourse between men and women. And so the apostles say, send her away. She's wearing us out. But I think there's more here than meets the eye. I think the disciples are also showing they're getting exasperated. They're getting desperate. Why isn't Jesus doing something here? They cannot help her. They don't have the authority to heal. But they're getting worn out because she shows no sign of letting up. And so I think if we look at this phrase, send her away, for she is crying out after us, is best understood, as several commentators pointed out, give her what she wants so she will go away and leave us alone. I think this fits the context. This is a desperate woman who will not leave until she gets what she has come to get. So Jesus, just give it to her and she'll leave us alone. I think it also fits with the way Jesus generally interacts with people, all who come to him and request help. He accepts. So that should show them that there's something unusual going on in this situation. There's a couple of more things, of course. Jesus is in the process of preparing the disciples to continue on with the work after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And think of where the disciples are at in their own understanding of things. We said last week when Jesus said it wasn't a matter of ritualistic hand-washing that made us clean. It was having a clean heart. And we said as Jesus was explaining that, it turned the understanding that the disciples had upside down. The system in which they had been raised is suddenly challenged and flipped upside down. And so they themselves have a need to understand really what is clean and unclean. So after he's given them this tough teaching, he takes them away and they're hoping maybe they'll have some time to interact with them. And then right away this Canaanite woman comes, this unclean person who comes and interacts with them. Their natural instinct or reaction would have been to send her away. So just heal her, Lord. Send her away. But the Lord has other plans. The Lord knows what he's doing. He just hasn't revealed it to them yet. And we have to just kind of wait as we move through the story to figure out what it is that he's doing. But secondly, Jesus, I think, is also engaging in a test of faith with this woman. She has come with some very messianic titles that not most Canaanites would have used. And so if she is, in fact, a believer, if she is, in fact, trusting in him, she will persist in the test. And we see that she passes with flying colors as we move through this text. So we have this first puzzling response. And then we get to the second puzzling response of Jesus. He says, I have a mission. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those lost sheep are those who have strayed from God and are spiritually alienated from him. And Jesus comes, as we've already seen, in the multiplying of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000, that he is the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep, that he is the bread of life who is able to give life to the, to the dead. He has said he is the new manna and the corresponding parallel in John chapter 6. And we have these parallels and these analogies all throughout the scriptures of the sheep and the shepherd, of God being the shepherd of his people. And he has said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He has come unto his own, the people of Israel, 
So how can he spend time ministering to Gentiles when his first responsibility is to Israel? This woman is, in marketing terms, is not the target audience, is not the urgent audience that he came to address. How can I minister to Gentiles when I have my first priority is to minister to the Jews? So what's going on here? And I think in the genius of Matthew, he would be really challenging his first listeners to begin to think about the main plan, the, main, the plan of God. Think of the big picture of what God has been doing in the past, what God promises to do in the future. We call it biblical theology, seeing the storyline from beginning to end and how it unfolds. And so we see then that the promise of God was given to Abraham. And through the line of Abraham, that all of the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham, through Abraham's race. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Matthew, from the beginning of this gospel, is recording that that promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate seed of Abraham, and the fulfillment of Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And that fulfillment, then, needs to be announced to the ones who had first received the promise. So, the blessing of a Messiah who will be a blessing to all nations was given first to the people of Israel, and it has to first be announced to Israel because they were the ones that received the promise. But they were not the ones who would exclusively hold on to the blessings that would come through the Messiah. They would be the first to receive the fulfillment. And that's why when Jesus came, he is focusing firstly on the ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But even as Jesus is doing that, he allows glimpses and flashes of light to shine through to show that it's going to break out, it's going to go beyond. Though Jesus will spend the majority of his time with the people of Israel, showing himself to be the perfect prophet, the perfect king, the perfect priest, the door, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And as he is doing that, he's preparing his disciples to bring those blessings to the nations. And so the focus on Israel is short-term, it's temporary, and then the focus would turn to the rest of the world once that had been accomplished. Now, is that a new way of thinking? No, because look at what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul, who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, who was the best teacher, as it were, in Israel, who had the equivalent of a Ph.D. in theology and in philosophy, as he is organizing it all together, and as he is writing to the Gentiles in the area of Galatia, and then as he is writing to the church in Rome, explaining the message of salvation by grace, by, by grace through faith in Christ alone, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And then he goes on, verse 17 of Romans 1, For it is in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul underscores that it's to go to the Jew first, but not to the Jew only. And Jesus is in that intermittent time where he is fulfilling promises and prophecies, knowing that when that is fulfilled, it'll, it'll spill over and it'll go to the nations. And we know then that that's been the task 
since the time Jesus was ready to ascend to heaven and he sent the church out and said, make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have taught you. And we see the culmination of that in Revelation chapter 7, when we see the image of heaven where all of the redeemed are gathered from all the different people groups from all time, gathered in front of the Lamb and worshiping the Lord. By the way, that, that, those verses, Revelation 7, 9, and 10, are the theme verses for a missionary conference. This is coming in September, Salvation for Every Nation. And I hope you already are marking it out in your calendars to be here September 7th to the 10th. We're going to have some of our cross-cultural partners that are going to be with us during that weekend, our ministry partners. We're going to have a great time of fellowship and teaching and learning of how God is pushing things forward throughout the world as he said he would. But let's get back to Matthew 15. We have these puzzling responses. I've been sent to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. So after seeing these puzzling replies, we get to praying reverence. Praying reverence. But she came and knelt before him. She's been pestering the Lord, pleading with Jesus, and now she seemingly somehow works her way up to the Lord and kneels before him in humble supplication. The word here is proskuneo. Proskuneo is often used in the context of worship. Let me back up just a moment. As she pushes her way through, she shows that indeed she is a model of faith. She's desperate to find Jesus. And as she's desperate to find Jesus, she's going to keep working until she gets to him, till her heart is satisfied. And so when she comes to him, she says, Lord, help me. And so I repeat the text, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And there we find the word proskuneo, which is often translated as kneeling in worship. This woman who has already given truthful statements about Jesus, calling him Lord and the son of David, now comes and worships him, kneeling before him in humble supplication. Showing the response that we should all have as we approach Jesus because we're the needy ones. He's the one who can provide. We kneel before him. And she says, Lord, help me. Which are perhaps the three most important words we will ever utter in our entire lives. We're all needy. We're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all desperate. And this woman gives us a great example, no matter our situation, no matter what we're facing, that we too can kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. In fact, I would say that at some point in our lives, all of us have to come to this realization and make this request, or we will never be saved. Are you desperate enough to where you're willing to do what it takes to get to Jesus and to bring him whatever your needs are and not let any obstacles get in the way and just run and fall and say, Lord, help me. This woman is desperate for God. And I would say beware of one who is not desperate for God for he is probably full of himself. And I would rather be full of the goodness and joy and grace of God 
because I know where that will lead. That if I'm full of myself, and I know where that will lead. But to this earnest cry for help, Jesus gives yet one more puzzling reply. To the children first. And so he responded, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Boy, it just doesn't get any easier here, Jesus. We're trying to be politically correct here. And here you just say, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I have a mission. And now, is he really insulting this woman and calling her a, a dog? Now, that is what the Israelites thought about the Gentiles. That they were all dirty dogs. They're not acceptable to God. And Jesus has already been criticized for eating with sinners and tax collectors, and he continued on in his ministry. So is he really put off by this woman coming to him? I think a better way to understand what's happening here is to see that there's some irony here. And I think if we had eyes to see, I think there's even some warm humor on the part of Jesus. Yes, he's using the metaphor of dogs, and of eating, and of their masters, and of crumbs, He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But I think we're helped when we realize that, at least in the original language, there was more than one word for dog. The usual word for dog is the Greek word teon, which was the typical word that was used for dog, for those that were the unclean, wild, savage, dangerous scavengers. What we typically think of when we think of wild dogs. This is the word that was normally used of dog, but it's not the word that Jesus uses here. The other word that he uses is canarion, which is a little bit more of a tender expression that was used of domesticated dogs who would spend time in the the property or spend time in the home. Still means dog, but there's a little bit more familial emotion to it. It does not have the full measure of what we call a house pet today, but it's closer to the home. The canarion would be in the home. The canarion would be allowed to eat with whatever fell from the table. Yet, he's still calling her a dog, not a child. Now, the word can be translated as little puppies, and Jesus is saying, don't take the food from the children and throw it to the puppies. That would be an injustice. Remember, Jesus has already shown us in the feeding of the 5,000 that he came to feed, came to provide the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Should I take bread from the house of Israel and throw it to the puppies among the Gentiles? But I think Matthew would want us to take a look at what he has already written about how Jesus interacts with Gentiles, what their role has been in the story. And so we go back to the beginning. And in the genealogy of chapter 1, there are four Gentile women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus. They probably wouldn't be the ones we would include. But it's to show that this is a different kind of Savior. This is a Savior of men and women and old and young and rich and poor of different dimensions. In chapter 2, in the Gospel according to Matthew, the first ones that are recorded as having come to worship the Christ child are the Magi who are Gentiles. In chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. 
took glory, healed people. We'll see examples of him healing people from Gentile areas. And then his mandate in the end of Matthew 28 is go and make disciples of all nations. So the issue here for Jesus is not one of cultural bigotry or anti-Gentile attitude, but one of salvation history privilege of Israel. The promise was first given to them. And so the fulfillment must be first announced to them. The priority of Jesus was to the Jew first. And once that was done, then it would be proclaimed to the world. And that's where we are at as we go and proclaim the gospel to all the world, making disciples of all nations so that the blessings of the gospel will flow out to the four corners of the world. And so we have a, a reference here, a clear teaching that ultimately salvation is not by race, nor by place, but by grace. That the redeemed of the Lord are going to come from all kinds of places and all kinds of life situations and from every people group, from the beginning of history to the end, who will be represented, who will be there around the throne of grace. This Gentile woman, this Canaanite, was not from a people group liked by Israel, but here she is one who confesses true faith and understanding of the Messiah. The mystery of God's grace and the salvation of sinners is truly an amazing thing. And I think this woman understands what's happening. And so she answers in reply to the children first, but bless the dogs as well. But bless the dogs as well. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Part of the problem we have is that we see it on our printed page in black and white, and we don't have the opportunities to see the subtleties of facial expression and interaction, because it's as important of the demeanor of how something is said, and not just what is actually said. You can say a hard word with a disarming smile and a twinkle in your eye. I might say to a friend of mine who has done something, you rat. And on black and white, it looks like it's really a rough thing. But because of the relationship that I have, it will be kind of a charming, disarming type of statement. What if we were to imagine Jesus, who is testing the faith of this woman, with a smile on his face and tenderness in his eyes as he says this? Is that keeping with who we know about Jesus, what we know about Jesus? We know that Jesus is often very hard with the religious elite and the arrogant and the sufficient, the self-sufficient, but always tender and merciful towards the downtrodden, which this woman surely was. She knows that she's not entitled, but needy. She's not privileged, but helpless. And so we have this image here then, but Lord, let even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. A plea, let me into the table fellowship. That is the sign of intimacy between God and his people. Just as Jesus fed 5,000 Jews in the wilderness is a sign that he was the bread of life and the true manna. We're going to see next week he's going to perform a similar sign in the same area that he's in now. He says that he will lay down his life so that others might live. He's the bread of life and all of this anticipates that great feast of the lamb before the Lord and before the throne of God. But in this context, this woman does not belong to Israel. She is not asking to sit at the table but she surely knows that there would be crumbs for the house dogs, the ki 
Even the house dogs benefit from the overflow, the abundance, the generosity given by the master. I'm not asking for much, he says, just a few crumbs. It's enough if it's a few crumbs to bring great relief. Think about this, my friends. Some crumbs from the Almighty are better than a buffet from sinners. Crumbs from the bread of life are better and of greater value than the best of bakeries. This woman senses what Jesus is saying. She has asked for mercy. She knows she's not entitled to anything. And if she is to be compared to a house puppy, even the house puppy is allowed to eat from what overflows from the table. So she calls on Jesus, who is the master of the house, to provide for his children, but to allow some of the crumbs to overflow. Yes, the blessings must flow to Israel first, but they will not remain there. They will expand to include all who believe among the Gentiles. And if you're in the Lord today, if you've had the privilege of having a life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know him to be the bread of life, then you can rejoice that crumbs have fallen from the table, and you've been able to receive eternal life, and are grafted in, to the body of believers who will sit around the throne forever and worship the Lord. Because the crumbs of the Lord are better than the buffet of sinners. And lastly, we see the praiseful reaction. The praiseful reaction. Jesus sees that this is a woman of faith. I think by this time, if we... If I'm wrong one day, I'll admit it. Okay? But I think if we were a fly on the wall in this conversation... They were sharing a knowing wink to one another, a smile, that they knew what was going on. And as Jesus interacts with her, as he has tested her faith, and as he sees her response, he calls out her great faith. and says, oh, woman, great is your faith. This affirms then that this interaction has resulted in a, in a lost sheep who has met the shepherd. Now, she's not of the house of Israel. But more importantly, she's now of the family of God. Oh, woman, great is your faith. You believe that I can heal and deliver, and you're so willing to overcome the social barriers of culture and gender that you come and throw yourself at my feet. Now, at this point, we remind ourselves that it is not faith per se that saves us. It is not faith per se that saved this woman and her daughter. It was the object of her faith. It was her faith in Jesus that saved her daughter. I can have great faith in an idol. I can have great faith in an icon. I can have great faith in a person and they're unable to do what I need. But I can have faith in God, even mustard seed faith, and see great results. This woman had faith in the one who could bring about results. As one commentator says, great faith does not imply a large quantity, but rather an immovable steadfastness in trusting God's word. God says it, and you believe it. And he responds. Now in Matthew, there are only two people publicly commended by Jesus for their faith. The Roman centurion and this Canaanite woman. Both of them Gentiles. The gospel is available to all. And after Jesus has tested this woman's faith, he now strengthens her faith. And as a result, there are great results. 
Be it done for you as you desire, Jesus said, and her daughter was healed instantly. What a great response. Oh, woman, great is your faith. You have what you request. And again, we see that Jesus can do anything he wants with a word. He didn't need to go see the daughter. He didn't need to lay his hands upon her or touch her. He said it. It was done. She believed. Jesus responded. The healing was instant and complete. But that's how Jesus works. And once again, Matthew invites us in to see the, the drama of human relationships. For this is another time in Matthew where we see that someone has gone to Jesus on behalf of another person who was sick or ill or unable to come to Jesus, but this person has gone and pleaded for Jesus to do something, and Jesus responds. My friends, sometimes it will be our faith in Jesus that will be used to help others in great need as we go and present them to the Lord. This daughter couldn't go on her own accord, but her mother could. Who are those around you that you can step in, as it were, on their behalf to bring them to the Lord, to pray for them, to minister to them, and tell them truth, to let them know that there is a way? Because it's our faith that needs to grow in him as we see these stories so that we can see that perhaps we're going to be that one that steps in and presents Christ to someone. And so as we read these stories, may the Lord grow our faith just as the Lord grew the faith of this Canaanite woman. Now, I think this whole episode astonished the disciples because they're still going through this great paradigm shift in their minds of what is clean and unclean and what is pure and impure and what does worship look like. And here Jesus interacts with a Canaanite and heals her daughter. This would have been astounding to them as Jewish men who thought that this type of interaction shouldn't happen. But Jesus says the gospel is available to all who come to him. Men or women or Jew or Gentile or rich or poor, old or young, Jesus receives them all. And in a subtle way, this Canaanite woman shows us what a Christ follower looks like. She was humble. She was repentant. She was needy. She was bold. She was perseverant. She was reverent. She was worshipful. Sounds like good attributes of a Christian, of those that truly follow Jesus and have met with him. May we learn, like this Canaanite woman, that God doesn't owe us anything, but he's often gracious to give us more than we ask. But he bids us come and fall at his feet. And because we need him and to him we must go, let us not delay and be those that go and kneel and worship and say, Lord, you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One. Here's my need. Help me. Next week, Jesus is going to continue in his ministry in Gentile lands, and we're going to see further blessings and miracles and another wonderful feast. But until then, as we think about celebrating the holiday of one country, what are some lessons that we can take from this sermon? Well, because Jesus is merciful, we will not delay going to him to seek and receive his mercy for ourselves and for others. We believe that Jesus is merciful and that you can go to him at any time. Secondly, because he is powerful and holy, we will bring our needs to him with reverence 
and yet boldness. He is still God. We are still not. That separation will always be there, so we go into his presence boldly but reverentially. Thirdly, because those around us need Jesus, we will bring their needs to him as well as our own. You never know how the Lord may use us in the lives of someone else whom we see in great need. Fourthly, because the gospel is available to all, we will present the claims of Christ to those around us, whatever their background or situation. If our Lord Jesus Christ can interact with a Canaanite woman, who might be that Canaanite in your life that you need to dare to build a bridge towards and interact with? And lastly, because Jesus is worthy, we will kneel before him and worship him. We will have that humble supplication as we go to him and ask him to work in our lives. Let us pray. Our Father, as we contemplate this great passage of Scripture that unveils our own hearts and our needs for you, thank you that that comes with an invitation to keep drawing closer to you. And so, Father, we do. In our hearts, we bow before you and we confess you as the Lord, as the Son of David, as the Messiah, as the forgiver of our sins, as our sure and steady anchor of salvation. And so, Father, as we face this next week, and as we have the opportunity to talk to others about what they're celebrating, may we have an opportunity to talk about what we are celebrating in addition to that, true independence and freedom because of a great and loving Savior. Father, would you give us a heart of compassion so that we'd reflect your heart? Would you give us the desire to love you through serving others and to speak the truth and love to those around us? And remind us, Father, to continually return to you and give you thanks for what you are doing and to trust you moment by moment. Would you use us this week, Father, for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name.